Psalm 44. And you know what? I could not have planned in my puny little brain and my my puny wisdom that I have, I could not have planned a more appropriate psalm for this particular day. I, I don't know if there is a psalm that is directly as pertinent and relevant to what is just blasting all the headlines now regarding Israel. Uh, what could be more relevant and appropriate than Psalm 44? How does God want you to think and how does God want you to respond in your present troubles. I didn't plan it. This is just the, the hand of God. We call that providence. God, God planned it, and it's for our good. This isn't going to be a sermon about current events, although my intro is going to bring up some current events. But we're going to, we're going to study the psalm and look at it together. So let's pray and ask God to help. Our Father, we have your word, the Bible, open in front of us. And we recognize, O Lord, that we are absolutely foolish if left to ourselves. O great God, without your word, we would be lost. Without the gospel of grace, we would be doomed. Without Christ, in whom is the treasure of wisdom and knowledge, we would be without hope. And so we thank you that you have given really the inspired hymnal of ancient Israel, these 150 songs that have been composed for your people through the ages to worship you and reflect and lament and know how to respond in different seasons of life. So teach us tonight as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 44, from the title, it is a maskeel of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples. Then you spread them abroad. By their own sword, they did not possess the land. And by their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm and the light of your presence, for you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command victories for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our enemies. Through your name, we will trample down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, nor will my sword save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you. You have rejected us and brought us to dishonor, and you do not go out with our armies. You cause us to turn back from the adversary, and those who hate us have taken spoil for themselves. You have given us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people cheaply, and you have not profited by their sale. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a scoffing and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my humiliation has overwhelmed me. Because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles, because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant 
Our heart has not turned back, and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals, and you have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or extended our hands to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But it's for your sake that we are killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake! Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Keep reading. Look at the subscription. That is the title of Psalm 45. In the English translation, it's a little jumbled. This should actually be the conclusion to Psalm 44. For the choir director, according to the Shoshanim. I'm sure just like me, you woke up earlier this week and you saw the headlines. Israel is at war, right? Israel's at war. Even right now as we speak, they're planning for a ground invasion in Gaza. Thousands and thousands of rockets have rained upon the country of Israel from probably every conceivable direction. Hamas gunmen have invaded by land and sea and sky, literally. Hundreds and hundreds of people have been murdered and kidnapped. Specifically, Hamas has been targeting women, children, and the elderly. The Muslims, these Muslims, have launched massive, indiscriminate rocket fire towards civilian population centers, as well as terrorist infiltration of cities and settlements close to the Gaza border. It's not only Gaza, it's even the north as well. When Hamas came for the invasion, they would go home to home, door to door, looking for the young, looking for the elderly. They would take children from parents. They would take parents from children. Some of the women they took hostages were survivors of the Holocaust. It is in the words of Israel's president, even yesterday, the prime minister said it as well. It has been the largest single day massacre of Jewish people since the Holocaust. widespread national calamity. No other way to put it. It is a national disaster. It is a widespread trouble. And we, we read the headlines and we read the articles and we see the videos and we see what's going on and we're tempted to think, where's God in all of this? Maybe like the nation of Israel at the time of Psalm 44. Where's God? Where's God? Now, you'll remember a couple of months ago when we last left off in our study in Psalms, we ended in Psalms 42 and 43. Those are the Psalms that help the person who believes in God to battle depression or despair or melancholy or the darkness of the soul. And what do you do? Well, it's an individual lament. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Hope in God, right? It's an individual lament. Psalm 44 is not an individual lament. It's a national lament. 
It's a nationwide lament. A nationwide lament. Let me just sort of give you some features of what's going on in Psalm 44. Check out how relevant God's word is. Israel feels rejected. They are dishonored by the enemy. They are plundered and despoiled. They are scattered and exiled. They are reproached and shamed. They are mocked and derided from others. They feel defeated. I mean, that could have been the headlines this morning. And why all of this? I mean, why does all of this happen? Why does God allow all of it? And the point that we're going to see from Psalm 44 is that God's intention in all of it, it is to drive the people of God to a resolved trust in the loyal love of God. It is from God to drive his people, to propel his people to a resolved trust in the loyal, covenant-keeping love of God. You see there in your outline, I have a, a little arrow there in the middle of the page. Here's the point of Psalm 44. If I could take the whole sermon and boil it down in one short little sentence, here's the whole point of the psalm. In times of suffering, you must hope in God's loyal love. In times of suffering, hope in God's loyal love. I want to take a minute and give you some of the background of what's going on here. As you see here from the title, look at Psalm 44, it's a maskeel of the sons of Korah. Now, the sons of Korah are an interesting group. They were Levites, probably from the family of Kohath. They were Levites serving in the time of King David. Probably, according to 2 Chronicles 20, verse 19, they were serving in the musical aspect of the corporate worship in the time of David in the tabernacle and then soon to be the temple. So the sons of Korah compiled this hymn. But right before that, notice what kind of a song it is. It's called a maskeel. That's a Hebrew word. The translators didn't really know, well, what's a maskeel? Well, it comes from a Hebrew word for skill. It comes from a Hebrew word uh, for something that gives wisdom in godly living. So here's the point of the psalm. The sons of Korah are writing a psalm. Why? Not just for you to get information. They want you to be skilled so that you can live in a godly way when the hard times come. It's like the book of Proverbs. He doesn't just want you to know facts about God. He wants your facts about God to impact the way that you live your life. And then, if you look at the end of the psalm, what's the conclusion? It's actually the heading of Psalm 45 in our, in our English Bibles. It's for the choir director. That baffles me. Something like this was written for the public singing of God's people. I mean, how often do we want to sing a national lament, right? I mean, it's just not really the first song that we might choose on our playlist, right? I mean, it's a national lament for the choir director. And then he even gives the tune upon the Shoshanim. In Hebrew, that would be like the tune for the lilies. We might say to the tune of Amazing Grace or the tune of How Firm a Foundation for them, it was the tune of the lilies. This song is meant to be public, sung, 
remembered. And it's to help you in godly living as you suffer, as you persevere through trials, so that you would hope in God while going through the afflictions. So going back to the question of the title of the sermon, how does God want you to think? How does God want you to respond in the present troubles? Psalm 44 is going to help. It's a national lament. A widespread public disaster has happened. And we need to look with the psalmist here. What do we learn? I want you to see with me in your outline, you see the three headings. They're very simple, very easy to derive it from the text. It's really kind of a simple flow. We're going to see the past triumphs, the present troubles, and the persevering trust. Notice how the psalm begins. The song begins with the past triumphs. We might say, do you remember the good old days? Do you remember the good old days? Look at verse 1. Oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old, and how you drove out the nations. It's like the good old days. You know, religion is on decline in America. Christianity is in decline in America. People are leaving churches in America. And yet we remember the good old days from church history, like 1739 to 1741, when George Whitfield comes to the Atlantic seacoast and he's preaching up and down from city to city. And a quarter of a million people, historians tell us, are coming to faith in this great awakening. God is reviving a massive swath of people. The good old days. We, re- we remember those. We, we've read about that in the history books. We, we know about that. That's like what the psalmist is doing. Verse 1. Yeah, we've, we've, we've heard about what you did in the days of old, God, how you drove out the nations. Verse 2 is essentially the book of Joshua. How, how the people of Israel came to the promised land and they drove out all the nations. I mean, God, this is your power. This is what you did. It's not by Israel's sword. It's not by Israel's mighty arm. It's by God's power that they did that. We have heard what you did, Lord. By the way, there's wonderful application here for the importance of verse 1, fathers teaching the children. Older saints passing on to younger saints the great deeds of the Lord. This is the parent's duty, every parent's duty. And children, this is your great privilege. If you have a dad and mom and a grandma and grandpa and a church family, those who are older in the faith teaching you, that is your great privilege. That is a wonderful blessing. It is our duty to pass on truths to the next generation. Psalm 78 is all about that as well. Deuteronomy 6 as well. Psalm 34, Ephesians 6. So we we see what you've done, God. We've heard about this. Look at verse 4. Notice how the psalmist says, verse 4, You are my king, O God. You are my king. You are my king. 
Verse 5, through you will push back our adversaries. Through you will trample down our enemies. Verse 6, I will not trust in my bow. My sword won't save me. Verse 7, you've saved me from the adversaries. You've put to shame those who hate us. Verse 8, in God we have, maybe in our English American vernacular, in God we trust comes from this. In God we have boasted. Literally, we have boasted all day long. Here's the source of that. We boast in our God all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. And don't miss Selah. What a God. What a God. Ponder, meditate on the, on the power and the provision and the glory and the blessings and all the things that God has done. Reflect on it and just ponder all the great deeds of the Lord, the past triumphs of the Lord. But the psalm doesn't end there. Verse 9 is kind of like the 9-11 in ancient Israel. We might say what's going on in Israel today is really the 9-11 in the modern state of Israel. The present troubles. When unexpected national crises come, it ought to be a wake-up call for any people. Such a time of devastation should cause the people to seek the Lord. If my people who are called by my name, 2 Chronicles 7, 14 says, will humble themselves and seek my face, then I will turn to them, forgive their sin, and heal their land. It, it ought to cause the people in times of national calamity to seek the Lord. We, we ought not to forget God. We ought not to abandon God. We should not be angry with God. We should not dishonor God. We ought to run to God. Maybe we ought to take these to mind as well. Preparing ahead of time before calamities come our way. Present troubles should always propel us to prayer. Present troubles should always propel us to trust in God. Present troubles should always propel us to a, a sturdy hope in God. Well, if you look at verse 9, the English is doing the best it's, it can, but the Hebrew is a little bit more emphatic in verse 9. Yet you, O oh God, you, it's like pointing the finger at God, you, you, Lord, we remember the good old days, but you. Verse 9, you've rejected us. You've brought us to dishonor. You don't go out with our armies you cause us to turn back from the adversary. Verse 11, you give us up as sheep to be eaten. Verse 12, you sell your people cheaply. Verse 13, you've made us a... Do you get the point? You, you, you. In English, we have it six times. In Hebrew, it's there ten times. You, 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 you. One thing that teaches, the psalmist knows... God is not absent from our trials. He's behind them. He's in them. And can we even say, as those who believe in the sovereignty of God, he brings them. He brings them. He brings them. Isaiah 45, 7, I create 
calamity and blessing. This is the psalmist just sort of unburdening his heart. Here's the psalmist just pouring out his heartfelt troubles. This is how I feel. Lord, I feel like you've abandoned us. And yet, and yet, hear this carefully. With all of this emotion that's going on, do you know what the psalmist does? He can't let go of God. We need that as well. Lord, I I see what you're doing and it feels like you betrayed your people and it feels like you've sold your people and it feels like you've rejected your people, but the psalmist won't let go of God. He has nowhere else to go. It's almost like an emotional vent in these verses. I feel rejected. I feel isolated. I feel defeated. I feel reproached. I feel dishonored. I feel humiliated. I feel undone. And to be sure, there's a national calamity that's happened. Now, real quick. Have you ever been there? Uh, maybe not, maybe not in a, in a national calamity, but, but have you ever been in an emotional crisis where you can relate to the psalmist? Where's the Lord? Maybe a spiritual battle. Maybe a time of great temptation that doesn't seem to let up. Maybe a season of spiritual warfare, a, a season of great spiritual battle. Can you relate to the psalmist where it's like, you have rejected us. I feel like it's just nowhere to be found, Lord. Where are you? Verse 14, you've, you've made us a byword among the nations. We're a laughing stock among all the peoples. Present troubles. What Israel is described as here is what's going on in Israel today. They, 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 they dishonored sheep to be eaten. Those who hate Israel have taken spoil for themselves. Dishonored, a laughing stock, a reproach, scoffing, derision, present troubles. So what do you do? What do, you, what, what do we do and how are we to think and how are we to act when these difficulties come? Well, there's the past triumphs, the good old days. There's the present troubles. But then you got to get to the persevering trust. Now, in verse 17, there are times when it seems like God is asleep. And maybe you need to pray like the psalmist in verse 23, wake up, Lord, wake up. And yet, can't we find some encouragement and comfort and consolation from the God-man who actually was sleeping in a storm in Mark chapter 4? There was a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat. So much of the boat was already filling up and Jesus was in the stern of the boat asleep, asleep. And the disciples came and they woke him. Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Wake up and do something. 
we're going to die. So Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and said, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Praise God that we have a mighty Savior. A mighty Savior. The God-man, even when it seems like he's asleep, he's all-powerful. He is almighty. He is all controlling and all good. Now, in your outline, you have a box. And before I look at the last section here of the psalm for a few minutes, I want to very briefly go through a, a legitimate question. Why does God bring suffering to his people? Why, now, the nation of Israel of old was not perfect. The nation of Israel today is far from perfect. We understand that. But why does God bring suffering? Maybe there's more that you might add to this list, but let me give you a few reasons why, just very quickly for some theological thinking. Number one, why does God bring suffering? Well, to glorify and honor and praise his own name, if for no other reason, for God to be glorified. Number two, why does God bring suffering? To purify and humble his people and absolutely shred all self-confidence. Number three, why does God bring suffering? To prove the genuineness of their faith by persevering, like James chapter one. By enduring, you prove your faith. Romans 5 as well. Number four, why does God bring suffering? In order to demonstrate the power of his grace in preserving you. He carries you through the suffering. Why? To magnify his power. Number five, why does God bring suffering? To persuade believers to think of their suffering in light of Christ's cross. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. We ought to think of our sufferings in the light of his sufferings. Number six, why does God bring suffering? Number six, to prepare us and to heighten our longing for a sufferingless glory. If for no other reason, God may bring suffering and keep bringing suffering and maybe intensify the suffering to prepare us for heaven. Number seven, why does God bring suffering to radiate the covenantal, unbreakable, divine love of God? I'm going to come back to that here in just a moment. So I think the whole psalm Verse 17 leads to this final section here. Well, we've seen the past triumphs and the present troubles, but now there's got to be persevering trust. So verse 17, well, all this has happened to us, but God, we've not forgotten you. They're not claiming to be sinless, but they're like, what have we done to bring this on? Verse 18, our heart is not turned back. Our steps have not deviated from your way. But yet, verse 19, Lord, you've crushed us. You've covered us with the shadow of death. Same complex little Hebrew phrase from Psalm 23. Even though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, when you come to verse 20, 
the psalmist and the congregation of Israel recognizes, well, if, if I forgot the name of God or, or if I worshiped a strange God, I mean, wouldn't God know this? After all, he knows everything. He knows our hearts. The whole psalm is leading to verse 22. If you miss verse 22, you don't get the psalm. But for your sake. We're suffering for your sake. We are afflicted for your sake. We are suffering not so much as a punishment, but as much as it is a battle scar. It's like a price of loyalty to our commander. We as God's people expect persecution, don't we? Jesus said in John 15, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted. Paul said to the believers, though through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. All this is happening for your sake, verse 22. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We are suffering God for your sake and for your glory. That's the lot of the people of God. Now, there's a couple of rapid fire commands after this. Wake up. Rouse yourself. Lord, wake up. Come to our aid. Be our help. Redeem us. By the way, one more little phrase at the end of the psalm that I want you to catch. Do you see the very end? Redeem us. Why? For the sake of your chesed love. Why would the psalmist bring that word up? Because there's no hope other than the covenantal love of God. There's no hope other than the faithful, loyal, covenant love of God. This is, this is the warmth of the fellowship with God, with the security of the faithfulness of God. I know that my God's promise of covenant love is eternal and it will never pass away. Now, there was another man. He knew suffering. And he loved Psalm 44. And his name was Paul. And I want you to turn to Romans 8. We'll end here. I want you to go to Romans 8. It's perhaps the sparkle on the diamond of the New Testament. Right here in Romans 8. This magnificent chapter. God's people of all the ages have been a persecuted people. But do you know what, though? When God's people are a persecuted people, guess what? We have nowhere to go but to hope in God's faithful love. We have nowhere to turn but to cling to the loyal love of God. We have nowhere to go but the love of God. Now, here's Romans 8. Let me take all 39 verses and make it <laughs> real simple and summarized here in a moment. Verses 1 to 17 is the saving ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's all what the Spirit of God does in saving people. Verses 1 to 17. Then in verses 18 to 25, you have the suffering and the endurance of God's people. 
the suffering and the endurance of God's people. We groan. We are longing, waiting for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We hope for what we don't see and we're patiently waiting for it. We are waiting. Then, verses 26 all the way to 39 is the secure salvation from our God. The secure salvation from our God. And you know this. I mean, you you know the work of God. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Salvation is, is the work of God. It's all the work of God for the glory of God. And he does that to conform us to the image of his Son. So verse 31, well, what do we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but he delivered him over for us all, how will not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. But who's going to condemn? Who's going to condemn? It's Christ Jesus who died. Yes, rather, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for us. And then Paul asked the question in verse 35, well, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, we're, we're, we are wondering who's going to condemn us. Who could separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. I mean, can anything separate us from God's love? Now, if you look in your Bible at verse 36, it's a quote from the Old Testament. And that quote is from Psalm 44. It's almost like the Apostle Paul is scratching his head thinking, now, what's the worst crisis I could think about where people might be tempted to think that I could be separated from God? Psalm 44, a national crisis that it feels like God has abandoned his people. Oh, maybe then could that separate us from God's love? Answer, no. No. For your sake, it is all for God's name's sake. We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul's not done. Look at verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. I mean, that's pretty much everything. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Psalm 44. That's the whole point of Psalm 44. That even in the times of the worst national crisis imaginable, where do you go? How do you think? How are we to respond? Answer, we must hope in the covenant love of our God. We have to lean on the loyal, unbreakable, permanent love of our God found in Jesus Christ. The goal of suffering and the goal of hardship is to drive the people 
to the loyal love of God. So, where do we see that most perfectly demonstrated? It's found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. We know love by this. Well, how, how, do we know the, how do we know this kind of covenant love, this loyal love? We know this love by this, that he, Christ, laid down his life for us. That's the gospel. Where do we learn the loyal love of God, the covenantal love of God that will never be broken in the most perfect way? At the cross. At the cross of Christ. And what is John doing? And what is Paul doing? And what are the sons of Korah doing? Look. Look at that love. Look at this love. Hold on to this love. Rely on this love. Hold fast to this love. Whether it's a personal calamity or a national calamity that comes. Hold on to the loyal covenant love of God. Look to Christ. Cling to him. Trust in him. There's nothing in all of creation that could ever separate God's people from the covenant love that he has in Christ. We rest in that. And that's what we pray for. Pray for even for Israel. Are they still under The Abrahamic covenant, sure. Most of the nation is hardened right now. We know from the book of Romans, they're hardened. But God, has God rejected his people? Not at all. 